Welcome to Where Others Won't. My guest on this episode is Rasmus Ankerson, football director at Brentford, a small soccer club in West London who use gambler's logic on and off the field to compete with clubs three to four times their size. This is the definition of going where others won't. If you like the show, please don't forget to leave a rating on your favourite podcast platform. But for now, enjoy the conversation. Rasmus Ankerson, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to, um, to, to speak to you. Yeah, you too. I've got a lot to talk about. I want to dive into a, a whole range of different things. I want to talk about Brentford in a little while, but let's start. I was introduced to you through our mutual friend, Aidan McCullen. So shout out to you, Aidan. And uh, he forwarded me your book, The Goldmine Effect, which looks at the hyper-concentration of talent, like long-distance runners from Kenya and sprinters from Jamaica, soccer players from Brazil. It's a fascinating read as a book. And I kind of want to ask you, like, where did the curiosity come from for you? Where where did the idea come from? And what was it that made you pursue that? I made a big mistake. That's what made me pursue it. And um, (laughs) the mistake was that I was was at that time a young aspiring soccer coach. And I was uh, I helped build one of the first uh, soccer academies in um, in Scandinavia at the time, and um, and and I remember the first year we recruited 16 players for the academy, and and it, and and especially one of them was interesting. His name was Simon. He was the last player we took in, and um, and we only took him in really because we couldn't get anyone better. He was 15 at the time, and and also he lived pretty close to the training grounds, so it was easy for him to get to practice. <laughs> And then, obviously, I mean, three years later, we ended up selling him for a lot of money, like four million pounds to an Italian club. And he was named as the footballer of the year in Denmark, as the youngest ever. And today he's the captain of the national team. And um, so when he was 15, everyone uh, in the academy, including myself, all the coaches, we did a small exercise where we uh, wrote down on a piece of paper the names of the five players in the academy we thought would be the best five years in the future. So we did that. We collected all the pieces of paper and we put them into an envelope and then we put it away for five years. And five years later, we reopened the envelope and turned out that no one had uh, Simon here among their five. <laughs> right. And uh, I mean, the guy that was number one on my list, he, he doesn't even play football today. He, he actually runs a pizza place in southern Denmark. So <laughs> that, that makes you think a lot about what is talent and how do you identify talent? How do you grow talent? What environment does it take to grow talent? So all these questions, I mean, a little bit out of frustration, like how could I overlook this guy? Uh, that kind of led me to dig into some of these places that seem to have cracked the code. Like why do the best sprinters come from the same athletic club in Jamaica? And why, why do a small village in Ethiopia produce the world's best middle distance runner? So there seems to be these environments that just produce one world-class uh, performer after the next. And, and that's why I, I decided to travel around and study these environments and embrace myself in them um, to, try and, to try and find the answers for some of these questions. And eventually that led to, to, to me writing and publishing The Goldmine Effect. So you mentioned something there, and you know, my positioning is I kind of sit in between sports and business. But what is talent? Like, answer your own question there. Like, what out of exploring all these different gold mines all around the world from an athletic perspective, but what is talent at a basic level? Um, I think it's a very big question. Um, and I don't think there is a, a, a simple answer to it. What I, what I would say is that, that often this conversation about what talent is gets stuck in between people who say, oh, it's genetics. That's what talent is. And, um, and, and then others people who say it's just about the practice, you know, there's no such thing as innate talent. It's all about, are you willing to pay the price? Mm-hmm. And I kind of feel there's a, there's a different, different story to it, which is, and, and a paradigm, which seems to sometimes be overlooked, which is, which is looking at more ecologically at, at, at it. Like, and that's what I tried to do with the gold mine effect. Like, I mean, there is not, there's not like. Uh, I don't believe there are like more uh, middle distance running talent born per thousand inhabitants in this village in Ethiopia than anywhere else in the world. But there seems to be an environment and 
kind of capitalize very effectively on that particular skill set. Um, so, so I'm much more interested in uh, answering this question from the spec perspective of what are the things you need to put into place in an environment for 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 for, for talent to flourish, really. Um, and, and I think that's a lot more as a much more interesting conversation that this than than this classic. Uh, very static um, nature-nurture uh, discussion is. That's really interesting. And we were talking off air about the amount of NHL players that Denmark is producing. And from me being an mm -hmm. Australian, I, I kind of look at the fact that we're only 24 million people and we're producing world-class athletic performers in a whole range of disciplines. We've got, you know, a couple of Formula One drivers. We've got you know, Cadell Evans winning the Tour de France and all these different things. And I would agree with you on, on what you said there around there's an environmental element that often doesn't get factored in. And for us in Australia, that's certainly the case. It's a, it's a sporting nation that's obsessed with, with sports of all different varieties. And there's also an element of like mindset that, that is kind of ingrained in you by growing up in Australia. Um, that ultimately helps you, you know, on a, on a world scale. And, um, yeah, it's, it's something that we, we never really factor in, even, you know, going back to the workplace and, and how we recruit talent there, we, we tend to just checkbox people in terms of their skills rather than the environment that they've come from. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, part of the, the, I'm doing a TV documentary at the moment about a small place in small town in Denmark that's produced five NHL players within, uh, the last 10 years, uh, which is which is by far uh, the most impressive story in hockey in the hockey world, and um, and and a part of my research was going to um, Kingston, uh, you know, a bit outside Toronto, to meet this guy called Shan Kutze, who has a, who has um, um, explored a concept called the birthplace effect. So basically, what he's 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 a researcher, and he's he's found out that uh, if you look at towns. In, the, in North America, which has between 50 and 100,000 people, um, towns of that size only account for about less than 10%, uh, less than 2% of the North American population, but they produce 20% of all NHL and NBA players. Hmm. So I think that is just such a, such an, such a clear demonstration that, um, that, um, uh, you know, that, environment is so important because what, why, why, you know, what, what, why is it that small towns are more effective at producing top athletes than big cities? It's not because there are suddenly more, you know, in a talent born in these places, but there is an environment that is a lot better for, for various reasons at facilitating, um, you know, um, potential coming to expression. So, so I, I think that is, that is over, over the next, you know, five, 10 years, I think the research, it's got to go into that direction. It's got to try and look a lot more at what are these uh, ecological factors that you need to put in place to build a, 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 a top talent environment. I love that. And the whole idea around where others won't was people thinking differently about a problem. And so this is why I love your work, not only from mm -hmm. the stuff that you do, but also at, at Brentford and I want to get into Brentford because we've touched on a couple of things yeah. that, that you guys have in your environment. But in your your, your TEDx talk, you, you talk about your introduction to Matthew Benham's. I'd love for you to tell that story to, to our listeners because it's kind of fascinating. And yeah. then I want to dig into um, you know some of the things that you guys have going on at the club. Yeah, I mean, I've spent probably like uh, most of my time today, 80% of my time on, uh, on, on running, running two football clubs, which is uh, Midtjylland uh, and Brentford. It's owned by, the, owned by the same guy, Matthew Benham. And I, I met him, we were introduced by a mutual friend and we, I met him like five years ago. Um, and, uh, and he kind of changed a lot of things about uh, how I thought about football uh, and do today. So I, I, um, I remember we met at the, you know, the training ground of Brentford, which is, called Jersey Road is like 10 minutes drive from Heathrow Airport is like very, very Spartan and simple mm -hmm. type of training ground. Um, and then um, when I met him, Brentford was third in league one, which is the third tier of English football. And uh, there was like five, five games remaining of the season. So I, I asked him obviously the question that you would ask any man in that position. I said, no, what, what, what do you feel? Are you going to, are you going to promote this season? 
Um, and uh, he didn't give me the answer I expected. He was not like an answer full of excitement. He just looked at me and then he said, in a very dry way, he said, like, at the moment, there's a 42.3% chance we're promoted. <laughs> so I just knew I just met someone who thought completely different about the game. And, and Matthew is, um, is a gambler, like a professional gambler. So not, not one of those guys placing a bet um, every Saturday to trigger their adrenaline rush. I mean, he's more one of the more sophisticated ones that have a have a betting syndicate with a lot of PhDs and statistics calculating the probabilities for the outcome of football games. So so that has made him a quite quite a rich man and he bought the childhood club Brentford and um, and then he also bought my childhood club uh, Midtjylland and and I've been helping help helping running them for the for the for the past few years and uh, and the whole mantra of the the club is that you, we need to win by out thinking not by outspending the competition we operate both clubs on a on a smaller budget than the best of our competitors and um, so we need to find we need to find you know another another way of winning Mm -hmm. just to north americanize this a little bit because most of the listeners are are based in in the u.s and canada matthew is essentially like a a billy bean like character in that uh Essentially, what you're looking to do is break the correlation between spending money and winning. And and in football, and yeah. you can articulate this better than me, but in football, that is a fairly strong correlation, correct? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's, it's 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 proven again and again that you know how much money you spend has a really high correlation to your results, and uh, it's not a perfect correlation, but there is a strong correlation, and uh, and that means that you know, for example, Brentford comp- compete in the in in um, in the championship, uh, and that's probably financially the most unfair league in the world. I mean, I think I remember there was a few years ago where, in a January transfer window, Aston Villa, one of our competitors, spent more money in that window than Brentford has done in, in its 127 years history. You know, so you're up against clubs that spend a lot more money and has a lot more resource than you have. And um, and the only way to if you keep do if you do the same thing as they do, there's no chance you're gonna win. So so the whole philosophy of Brentford and Midtjylland, for that sake, is to try and you know what Matthew would call try and identify some of those inefficiencies in the game and the way the game is played and and try and exploit them. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I know you guys are building a new stadium, but uh, your stadium at the moment is six thousand. Oh, it's twelve thousand actually. Twelve thousand, a little bit more. And yeah, but but very 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 small compared to to most other stadiums in the league, and um, yeah, and also without any hospitality facilities, which which means that we have the lowest revenue in the league, you know. And so, how do you go about all this considered? How do you go about breaking that correlation, or at least attempting to? Well, there are a few things. I mean, um, uh, recruitment has been a huge thing for us. I mean, the ability to 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 find like undervalued talent in the market and and bring them in and and have them make a difference for us on the pitch, but also sell them on with a big profit. Um, and um, and just to give one specific example of that, we we try and use the intelligence that Matthew has has, has available as it as at his betting syndicate. So, for example, um, um, we 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 try we, we, when people typically, if you go to Spain, for example, and you see a player in a team, you can. It's not difficult for someone to see that, that that's a that's a good player mm-hmm. and he stands out. But on you know, you might have been a scout for ten years or fifteen years or twenty years, but no matter how experienced you are, it's very difficult for the human eye to judge the context of that game. So what is the level of that game compared to the level you play at? It's very difficult for, 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 the, for the human eye to make that judgment very accurately. Right. But what you can do with data, if you have a good model, is that you can, you can, you can compare the, the, the relative strength of teams uh, in different leagues. So we never say, oh, right, you got the Spanish league here, you got the Swiss league, you got the German league and you the English league. That's not how we think. We say if all teams played in the same league, how would the league table look like? And then we try and identify some of those teams that have more quality than we have, um, and but but are undervalued by the market, for example. Mm-hmm. So in the English, English divisions, you know, uh, we had quite a lot of success uh, hiring from some of the lower leagues, 
and bringing them on and selling them for big profits within a pretty short space of time. And uh, and we felt there was an inefficiency in, in, in that system because people thought that the, the big difference in English football was between uh, like the, the, the difference between the bottom teams in the Premier League and the top teams in the championship were pretty big. And and uh, the difference between the top teams in League One and the, the bottom teams in Championship was pretty big. They were thinking in divisions, whereas we could see on the stats that and the models could tell us that actually the big difference in English football is not so much between the bottom teams in the Premier League and the top teams in the Championship. It's actually been number, between number seven in the Premier League and number eight in the Premier League. You know, right. that's, the top seven teams are far, far, far ahead. But other than that, you know, there's not a there's not a lot of difference, so you could easily find a team in the top in a really top team in the, in in League One, which would be very close to being a bottom team in the Premier League, uh, but the market doesn't obviously doesn't take that into account. So we've been trying to um, to exploit that inefficiency, and and we had quite quite some success with that. Um, another another example I could mention would be the whole emphasis we have on set pieces. Uh, you know. 35% of goals in football are scored from set pieces, some corners, free kicks, and throw-ins. Um, but, but most teams spend maybe 10 minutes every week training set pieces. Mm-hmm. And it just doesn't make sense right. You, you, couldn't imagine a, 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 you couldn't imagine a company that spent a fraction of its time on an activity that generated 35% of its revenue. That, that, wouldn't, that wouldn't be acceptable. You know? But that happens in football. We actually have a lot of set plays and actually take them seriously and say, what is it that we can learn from them in terms of um, improving uh, our output through set pieces? Because potentially, uh, I mean, I remember we made a calculation at one stage. We say like the difference between a good set piece strategy and a bad set piece strategy could easily be 0.5 goals per game. And 0.5 goals per game is basically like playing with an extra play on the pitch for half of the game. So it's like a pretty big, pretty big difference it can, it can make. But, but very, uh, most teams are underrate that. So that, that's another way we try to kind of look at the game and the market and see like where, where are the inefficiencies? Here? Where can we play the game and approach running a club in a more optimum way? Um, yeah, so that's, that's a couple of examples, yeah. And we talked about this a little bit before we came on air. A lot of this ties back to just structural inefficiencies. We're not necessarily just talking about the inefficiencies in terms of how we rate talent, but also mm-hmm. just the way the game has evolved. And yeah, it's always been a thing to practice this for 10 minutes at the end of, of, of training. And, and, and that's just kind of stuck with us through the generations. But as you said, the, the data and, and the statistics behind it are actually pointing to, we should be practicing this more. And when you, when you blow that out, even, you know, we were talking about coaching and, and the impact of coaches and, and what they have on a team and, um, potentially that being overrated. And so, you know, if that's the question, then, you know, you blow it out again. Why, why do clubs place so much emphasis on the coach and, and their strategies versus maybe having a broader strategy under a, a director of football like yourself? And uh, so, yeah, it's not just about, uh, you know, a simple statistic like expected goals or something that kind of gets the headline. It's actually about reorganizing football completely around these models, correct? Yeah, I mean, the... the... Uh, you know, we, having an you know expected goals model is fine. I mean, it's not it's not rocket science. I mean, lots of clubs have that. <clears throat> you know, so. But but I think where we where, I think where we probably are a bit different is that this kind of innovation, this kind of work, goes on in many clubs, but it goes on in the basement. No, it's not. It's not. It doesn't have a real impact on decision making. Whereas here, it comes from the top. It comes right from the owner who thinks this way. And that means that that is the most important tool when we make decisions. You know, we don't look at the league table position when we decide should a manager stay or should he go. We look at underlying performance indicators, you know, at the underlying rating, which we think have a lot more predictive value. We know have a lot more predictive value than our current league table position. So it's like it, it, is, it is something that we really believe in because it's something that has come right from the, right from the top and it has an, has an impact. And I mean, that's the... That's the that's one of the reasons why, why I think English football compared to, for example, German football 
haven't progressed much in the past 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, a, it's an organizational structure problem that you, you have this, this blind belief in the manager as the king. You know, if you have bad results, it's because of the, ma- the manager. If you have good results, it's because of the manager. You know, it's like I, I remember remember reading at the time. I think they, they this is the saying about that came from um, the U.S. about American president. They say American presidents get too much credit and too much blame. <laughs> so when the when the economy is great, it's because of the president. When the economy is bad, it's because of the president. And and obviously there's a lot more nuance to that. But it's simply the same same thing in 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 in, in many football clubs. It's like. Uh, when you win, the manager gets uh, too much credit. When he when you lose, he gets too much blame. And uh, and and there are so many other factors that influence that. And, you know, we we often ask the question like, well, how many points is a good coach really worth? Uh, you know, and maybe five ten points. You know, per season if it's a real top 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 coach. But that's not a that's not a lot. I mean, there's a lot of other factors that are, that that can influence as much as that. So, and 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 getting a coach that will give you five to ten points more. I mean, it's for for us in our position, with our financial capacity, it's difficult to to attract these guys. So, so for us, it's it's a, it's it's about it's not so much about hiring a, a genius. It's it's more about not hiring an idiot. And then having a strategy that kind of uh, that you know that is in place and that exists, whether this guy is the manager or that guy is the manager. So, yeah, that's that's that it's it's a lot it's 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 a lot about trying to central like key decision making with people who have the long term interest in the uh, of the club at at heart, and 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 that's that's. That's why I think it's an organizational structure in English football because many clubs are structured with a manager in the middle of everything, someone who has uh, full responsibility for both long-term and short-term decision-making. And, um, and, 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 and that's fine in itself, but the problem is that if you look at the lifespan of a manager, he typically has his job for 16 months, then he's sacked. You know, if, you, if you have your job for 16 months, if you know that's the average you're not going to think very far ahead. You're probably just going to think until next Saturday. That's your time horizon. And you cannot run a club where, where the, the main guy makes decisions with a time horizon of one week. It just doesn't work. And I think that's, 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 the, main, that's, that's the main reason for why organizational structure and the way power is distributed in the system is very key for for. for for, for how you run any organization, but also especially in football. As someone that studies other sports, obviously, and you talked about you know your documentary and that type of thing, do you look at the impact of coaches across other sports as well? Uh, what, what, what do you mean? So say, the, say a bit more about that. So would you go into the the like the power dynamics and the the complete um, you know the average tenure of a coach and kind of look at the impact that they have you talked about you know a coach might be worth five to ten points in football would you go and look at say the nhl and and, and something similar to be able to um get an idea of um the actual impact of coaches across different sports or have you just looked at football yeah i mean uh, in 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 uh, I, I pretty much look most at football but i think you it's the most important thing is to understand the the dynamic of the, the discipline you compete in and football is a bit different than, say, basketball because it's uh, it's there's a lot more randomness in football, you know, and 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 mainly down to the fact that it's a low-scoring sport. So the average number of goals in a football game is 2.8, and the average number of goals in a basketball game is is a lot more than that, right? So, mm-hmm. and and the fewer goals you have in a sport, the more impact random events have, like the ball getting deflected or the referee making a wrong call in the last minute of the game. So so basically. Um, it, it means that random, just down to randomness, you know, a, a, a shot that hits the basket in basketball and bounces off, it's very unlikely to have a big impact on the final score, whereas a shot that hits the post in football can easily make all the difference between winning and losing. So because of this random nature of the game, it means that your points, the number of points you actually get, you know, can go 15 points one way or 15 points the other way, solely down to randomness just randomness 
and people don't want to accept that. You know, they they, they don't the brain is not designed to the brain is not designed to uh, deal with randomness or accept randomness as a satisfactory explanation because we want to know why something happened. You know, mm-hmm. and that's why we end up blaming the manager when it goes bad, and, and then you know crediting him crediting him when it when it goes really well. So so I just think you know there are so many other more factors in football that influence things than, 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 than the coach. He's a really important figure in the club, but it's not the only important figure. And, and I think because of that randomness in football, it's just even more important to look beyond what you, what you see than it is in, 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 um, in, for example, high scoring sports like basketball, where the, um, the best team wins more often, you know, um, so, so yeah, I think I think you got to look at the, the, the your sport and, and what are the special characteristics of that sport. What game are you actually playing? And and once you have a good, really in depth understanding of that, then you uh, you 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 have a better chance of making good decisions. One of the things that we were talking about before we came on air was history and the history of organisations and how that can impact even the modern day version of that team or that club and kind of being handcuffed by history and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, it becomes a barrier to being able to make these organizational changes and, you know, address some of these inefficiencies that, that you see, um, you guys at Brentford and at Midgeland, uh, relatively young clubs. Um, and so you're kind of building out this history around some of these newer ideas. Do you see that as a competitive advantage for you that you're not handcuffed by that history? I mean, Midland is a is a is a good example of that because it's only a it's a club that's only 20 years old. So there you don't have a lot of like uh, uh, old old guys uh, knocking on your door saying, "Hey, you should do this because this is how we won the championship in the 70s." You know. You know, you you don't you don't have that that noise. You people kind of just, you know, we we often say Midland is what you make it because that's really the mentality of the club. It's like we don't have these emotional shares in what worked in the past, so we just say, why, hey, but you know, what's the best way to win? And then we try, you know, it's a it's it's we move faster, we maybe take more risks than if if we if we had than we would do if we had that 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 emotional baggage that many clubs have. Uh, Brentford is also, you know, I think an innovative club that, you know, is, is, is fast and, and take risks. Uh, but I, I mean, we get away with that without too many protests because from the fan base, because Brentford is doing better. You know, the, we are kind of, a, Brentford is at, at its peak now in the last 70 years. So, you know, people are more appreciative of, of, of where the club is and, and, and they remember the times in league one and league two, which is, was, was, was a very different reality than, than where we are, where we are now as a club. But I think I see like, um, I, I, I went to Nottingham Forest of, uh, a month ago to see Brentford play. And, uh, you know, in the ballroom at Nottingham Forest, there's these two, two, uh, trophies from the, from the, from when they won the, the, the European cup back in the 60s and 70s. And, you know, on the big screens before the game, they show these uh, uh, videos, uh, like celebration videos from when they won those championships. And so I just, I just thought, when I, I mean, it must be, a, it must be tricky to lead a club like that because you will have that history, and that that can that can that can often block innovation because people tend to, you know, say we're just gonna do whatever we did at the time we won. We just gotta keep doing that. And then we will get back to glory days. Um, so I, I think I think success of past success can be a real blocker for innovation in organizations in general, because you have a lot of emotional shares and people have a lot of emotional shares in what worked in the past, and therefore they are often more likely to protect that rather than just looking at things on a blank sheet of paper and say, okay, how do we how do we how do we how do we get good? How do we win? Absolutely. And, you know, sitting here as an outsider looking at the Toronto Maple Leafs and, you know, they, they have exactly the same thing. When you go to a Leaf game here in Toronto, there's the old black and white footage up on the, the scoreboard because they haven't mm-hmm. won since 1967. However, 
Yeah. If you ask the fans, uh, the, the fans kind of think that they've won every year. Like they treat them like they've been successful for the last 50 years, even though they haven't. And, and now with a general manager that's younger than me uh, in his early 30s and is more data-driven and statistically minded in terms of player evaluation and, and the game, uh, it's got a big job ahead of him to uh, change the, the culture of the club and, and be truly innovative um, whilst having a fan base that, yeah, all they've really seen is success in black and white. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's it's, it's like being uh, being the being 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 a football you know being a football in Argentina. I mean, if you are like fifty, sixty years old, and you're from Argentina, you you've seen your country win two World Cups. You know, <laughs> so that's your benchmark. That's what you expect to happen. And I, I think that that that's where there's a tremendous amount of pressure, often in these big clubs that have that history, because uh, you know, it's 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 um, you're always being measured against that, which is a is a really high benchmark, and uh, and I think those type of clubs can easily become very short term short term driven in the way they they think and make decisions because of that because of that pressure. There's no tolerance for for failure really um and and yeah but i i i i admire the guys and i respect the guys a lot who run these clubs because i I, i'm sure it's not easy definitely not no one of the things that i wrote about in my book was outsiders perspectives and the value of those and as someone that Mm -hmm. you know you being it let's call you an insider uh, and matthew kind of being an outsider um in that you look at the the world differently um, from inside football versus outside football. What was that process like mm-hmm. for you in terms of kind of reconsidering how you had probably always seen the game? I mean, it took me some time. I mean, it's, uh, I remember, you know, for example, the whole, con- the whole concept that, uh, um, that the league table lies. <laughs> this is, you know, this is the fundamental principle of a gambler, right? It's like the league, because of the random nature of the game, uh, the league table lies, um, uh, and you know that's like in football. That's like to a football guy. That's like saying the world is flat. <laughs> you know, it's 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 completely different than what you what you, what you've grown up with. You know, uh, you've grown up with hearing the league table never lies, and now someone comes and says the league table always lies, uh, and and that that concept has a lot of implications of how you make decisions and what 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 are you a uh, indicators to your progress and uh, it took me it took me a long time to i think really emotionally buy into that i had to see these patterns you know when a team's results regressed to the mean um you know i had to see that again and again in order for, to, to build the trust in the models and the fact that you know you you um that, that they were more trustable than than the league table itself so, but I think that's 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 where innovation often comes from. It's it doesn't come from the inside. It comes from an idea from the outside. Uh, because um, I mean, I remember when 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 I did when I wrote the goldmine effect and I, I I traveled around. I also realized that many of these really successful coaches I met they they not been in uh, top athletes themselves. Like Stephen Francis, who's maybe the most successful uh, sprinting coach in the in the past decade, is. He was a statistician, you know. He's never sprinted himself. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Carl O'Connell, who was um, is the most successful coach of middle and long distance runners in the history, maybe like he's an Irish guy who lives in in Kenya. I mean, he was a geography teacher uh, coming to Kenya in the 70s to teach geography as, at a boarding school, and eventually ended up as a running coach. Um, I, I, I spoke to really a really highly regarded uh, golf coach in in. in South Korea that produces 35% of the world's 100 best female golfers, and uh, and he was he used to be an environmental activist, actually fighting against the establishment of golf courses until he fell in love with the game. <laughs> so you know a lot of these guys, a lot of these guys actually didn't come from the inside; they came from the outside and they changed the game they were in. Uh, and I think it has something to do when when you when you work in, when you've been a part of an industry, you, you also build a lot of assumptions about things, you know, this is how, this is supposed to work this way. And you don't challenge these assumptions because the more experience you get, the less you challenge these assumptions. 
And sometimes you need someone from the outside, someone who knows enough to understand the problem you have, but doesn't know so much that they have too many assumptions and the assumptions becomes an intellectual handicap for them. You know, if you have someone like that who could come, who works a bit in the margins of your field, you know, that's the guys you want to, you, you want to try and get to solve your problems and, and see where your next innovation is going to come from because they don't, they don't have all, they don't have all these assumptions. They don't have the emotional, emotional baggage in terms of what, 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 what used to work and what has worked for you up until this point. And on top of that, they also bring a, a new prism to solve problems through um, from their own experiences. And uh, yeah, I completely agree. Like you're, you're speaking my language and, and, and I've written about this a lot in terms of innovation coming from the outside and particularly aimed mm-hmm. at, at the business world. And, you know, we're, we're struggling to solve a lot of these problems uh, in the business world in terms of even within our organizations, but we still just kind of hire the same people. Um and don't look to the outside and, and potentially don't bring out in an outsider who has no industry expertise and have them look at our, our set mm-hmm. of problems. And, uh, and then we wonder where, why we can't innovate, um, both mm-hmm. in terms of our culture and in terms of our products and services and, and our offerings. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I want to ask you though, uh, cause I know the answer to this question, but I, I'd love for you to kind of unpack that idea of the league table lying because I think people are going to have some questions mm-hmm. about that. Um, so, for instance, at the moment, you guys are sitting 12th. Um, however, um, you could potentially be higher on the table. Um, so, like, why why does the league table lie? Uh, it lies because of uh, the, the randomness of the game, you know, the inbuilt randomness of the game. So because you have, um, as I said, like a, it's a low scoring sport football, you, 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 the random events of the game have a lot more impact on the final score than, than it has in handball, basketball, which are, are high, high scoring sports. The other reason for the randomness is that football is played with the feet, you know, which makes it more uncontrollable than if it's played with, with hand. It's 11 against 11, which adds complexity to a more randomness to it. So there's a lot of like various factors that then makes football a, a, a really random game, but primarily the fact that it's a low-scoring sport. So um, they, this means basically that the best team in football will, will win less often um, than it will in basketball because it's a, it's, it's a low-scoring sport, and that's why the league table lies. So the league table lies more after 10 games than it does after 38 games, which is a full season. But still 38 games, you, you can ask any statistician, and he will tell you that 38 data points is a really small sample size. It's not enough to scrape out the randomness. So even after 38 games, it's not, you can't say everyone gets what they deserve because they don't. You, know, you need a much, much bigger sample size for that to be the case. Mm-hmm. So, so, so this is why, like, this is, this is the whole philosophy of a gambler, is that a gambler is obviously in the business of making a prediction um, as the nature of gambling and then uh, backing those predictions with his bets. And, and when he decides to place a bet, he never looks at where is that team in the league table. He looks at, hey, what, what's the underlying performance indicators look like? Um, and, and, and then make the decision because that gives him a more accurate picture of how, is that, how well is that team really done how strong is it and where is it likely to go in the future, which is what, 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 what they want to know. So when we, we don't want you know, to make decisions. You know, we, know, we know that game at randomness can swing our points, 10 or 15 points, one way or the other. Um, so sometimes you get more than you deserve and sometimes you get less than you deserve. And this is two different psychological challenges. When you get a lot less than you deserve, it's often about because you got fans, you got media who want you. Hey, sack the coach is not good enough. But if the underlying numbers are good, you want to stick to the plan. We had such a situation um, during the um, uh, during the fall where we kind of lost eight out of ten games with one goal only, and uh, obviously didn't get many points. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the underlying rating was 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 pretty decent actually. So we stuck we stuck to the to the plan and this thing a result of turned around now as we expected to do and we kind of only lost two now in the last last twelve and 
has been probably the, the, the team on the best form in the, in the league. So then you have situations where you get a lot more than you deserve, you know, and this is a different psychological challenge because you can come to a coach and you can say, listen, you're getting probably 10 points less than the underlying, the, the underlying performance is actually justified. Okay. And he will say, well, yeah, that sounds great. That's my feeling too. But when you come to him and say, listen, mate, you're getting 10 points more than your underlying performance justified. You've been really lucky. You know, uh, it's a lot, it's a lot more difficult for human beings to accept that. Um, so we, we often say like luck, success turns luck into genius, right? You know, and, and this is where I think we're really trying to have a skeptical mindset about success. So trying to really ask ourselves, like, why, why, when, we, when it's going well, is it, is it actually because we've really improved the underlying rating? Or is it because of randomness, the fact that we're just lucky? And, and, and that's a massive thing, I think, for an organization. It's not to end up not confusing skill with luck. Because if you, if you end up doing that, you, you assume you have a stability in, in your results that really isn't there. So our season so far has been a story about, like, uh, the underlying rating has been pretty stable throughout the season. We are, I think, the fourth or fifth best rated team in the league. Um, and, um, and, but, but we had a really bad spell of results, which was uh, partly down to being unlucky. Um, and and uh, then we had like a, a results regressing to the mean and we're probably performing as the team we are now and getting the results we, sh- we should be getting. So, um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's yeah, well, a sim- simple example is you can, one, one, one thing you can easily look at sometimes, sometimes when you look at the table is to test this, is to look at a statistic called goal difference, which is people don't talk so much about it, but it's public available. And goal difference is the difference between the number of goals you score versus the number of goals you concede. And, uh, and, and that's often a better indication of how well you're doing than your actual number of points actually is. And uh, if you look at the table now, I mean, we have a plus 13 goal difference. We sit 12th in the table. And a plus 13 goal difference, if you made the table just on goal difference, should made us uh, fifth best team. So, you know, it's just... Um, it's just, I think in, in, in business, it's quite normal to, to use leading indicators to um, tell you something about how is the underlying health of the company and where you're likely to go in the future rather than just looking at lagging indicators. But in sports, in particular football, people are not so familiar with that idea. But really, that's, what, that's just what we're trying to do. That was so eye-opening for me listening to your TED talk around that and, and you gave the example of Newcastle United and how you could actually see the writing on the wall a season ahead based on their goal difference and just to even build out and you know this probably won't be the case anymore once uh, once this episode goes to air but so you guys are 12th at the moment um, ahead of you uh, Hull City with a goal difference of minus one and you guys are plus 13 Birmingham plus eight mm-hmm. Uh, Preston plus six. So essentially, yeah, y- you have the six teams ahead of you covered. And then once you go further down the table, Aston Villa um, plus eight, Swansea City plus two, Stoke City minus five. So well and truly ahead of kind of <laughs> the teams in mid table. Um, yeah, th- that's really eye opening to, to a lot of people. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, as I said, it's like, this idea that the the league table lies is uh is like saying the world is flat. It's, it can it can be emotionally difficult to accept for many people. Um, you, your brain is not decide, it's not hardwired to deal with randomness. You know, you are hardwired to wanting a narrative. You know, the coach is an idiot. That's why you lose. Or the coach is a genius. That's why you win. <laughs> so it's um it's um it's it's, it's but it's a very it, it's, a, it's an idea that if implemented correctly, it helps you to make better decisions because you end up not driving change when you should stick to the plan and you don't stick to the plan when you should drive change. Um, so, so I think it's a very used correctly. It's a, it's a, it's a very helpful tool. And um, it just emphasizes, I think, the importance of knowing what game you're in, what's the, what's the dynamics, the nature of the game you're in, and what does that mean for, 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 for the decisions you make? Likewise, in business, I mean, you can, you can operate in industries where there's a huge amount of randomness, and you can op- operate in, in, in businesses and in industries where there's not a lot of randomness, where, you know, um, 
and and it's two different two different scenarios. Like chess, chess, for example, is not a you know the best the best chess player almost always wins because it's not a it's not a very chess is not a very random environment. You know, it's it's a lot about skill, where football is on the other side of the spectrum. Definitely. What I know you you mentioned before you're working on this uh, television documentary. What uh, what's captivating you at the moment? Like, what are you uh, throwing yourself into and learning about? Um, you know, maybe outside of sport. Um, well, I mean, uh, for, for, for the research project, project you mentioned is a big uh, big passion of mine at the moment. So I'm trying to kind of um, I w- I was I wrote this book, The Goldmine Effect, and I traveled around the world and lived and trained in these environments, and and then I came back and I I had a friend. Um, I had a friend um, I met with in my hometown, which is called Hanning, and uh, we had a coffee one day. I was I was back home, and he said, uh, "Listen, I think you overlooked the most the most impressive gold mine of all, and actually, it was just around the corner. I don't understand why you didn't see it." And uh, then he started telling me about this ice hockey story where I grew up. I mean, I remember going to ice hockey when I was a uh, when, when I was younger and watched the team play, that won Danish championships, and so on. And uh, and it turned out that there's these, like this town with f- five uh, fifty thousand people where where I grew up, and we, that town has actually produced five NHL player, players over the past ten years, which is unbelievable, more than most American states have. Uh, and and um, and there's this great you know crazy statistic that there are more ice hockey referees in Toronto than the ice hockey players in Denmark. <laughs> and then there's a town in Denmark that has produced five NSL players and a lot of other good players as well. I mean, they, 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 at the world's last world championship in ice hockey, Denmark beat Finland sensationally. And uh, 50% of the team was from, 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 from Hanning. So, so I'm, I'm really looking into this. I'm really trying to see if I can, if I can uh, explain in a compelling way uh, what are some of those ecological factors that have made this possible? Because it's not, you know, don't tell me there are more ice hockey talent born per thousand inhabitants in my city than anywhere else in the world. But for some reason, there was this environment that has um, has managed to 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 make this possible. And uh, if we understand those factors, can we then replicate it? I think that's the big question, isn't it? Um, and and that's what I'm trying to 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 find out. So that's that's a big uh, that's a big um, that's a big uh, project. Other than that, outside football, outside my my work, I'm trying to learn Spanish. Not going that well, but um, yeah. <laughs> why, why Spanish? I think it would be something I wanted to do for a long time. I mean, it's um, if you, when you when you work in football, for example, it's been it's, it's it's hugely beneficial to be able to speak several languages because mm-hmm. you you speak to. To, to people across the world, and also because I love language. I mean, I I I, I learned German when I was at school and English, and um, uh, well, I think it's a it's a it's a, it's a good challenge to get you. It, it keeps you uh, it keeps your brain going and uh, keep keeps you fresh and um, and uh, yeah. So so I'm, I'm I funny enough I was uh, growing up and I always loved language and I hated mathematics. <laughs> and then I ended up um, working for a proper mathematician who taught me a lot about that. <laughs> so I didn't make, I wasn't expecting that. So now I'm trying to regress a little bit to the mean and go back to the language world. <laughs> I'm with you. I am trying to teach myself French. Uh, my wife's whole All family right, okay. speak French. And it's one of my big regrets. Growing up in Australia, uh, you know, there's no neighbors. Uh, so we didn't really have a need to learn another language. Um, it's not like, you know, you pop across the border uh, from Italy to France, and yeah. so it's beneficial to know the language. Literally, the next-door neighbour is New Zealand. And so we language is never high up the preference list for us. So no. uh, I never learnt another language, and it's one of my great regrets now. And, uh, yeah, obviously being in Canada, speaking a little bit of French helps. Um, so I'm, I'm with you. It's, it's tough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, <laughs> but it's a good, good little challenge. Absolutely. Where can people follow along with you and find the work that you've done and and the work that you're you're currently doing with the documentary? How can people uh, follow along? Yeah, I mean, I, I I do updates on my LinkedIn profiles, you know. So I people 
connect with me there. I think that's the that's the best way. I I try and um, try and update on what I'm doing as 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 I go along and and um, and I've got a website uh, called rasmusangerson.com where where um, you can find some of my my, my talks and um, and um, I've I've been doing over the past few years about some of the topics we've been discussing on the on on this podcast today. So yeah, I think that's it. And then hopefully within the next six months, I, I'll 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 be I'll be done editing the the, the TV documentary and and uh, it it can it can be um, published. I mean, um, obviously in the UK where I live, uh, not many people care about uh, ice hockey. So I think the I think it would be much more interesting for the Canadians and the Americans to to watch it. That uh, that actually the most impressive talent developed the most impressive talent developer in the world is not in the US or Canada, but maybe in a small, small little town in, in, in Denmark. Absolutely. People here in Canada will eat that up. I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> looking forward to that. And, uh, and obviously uh, people can follow Brentford um, and uh, Midgieland on uh, social media as well. Both flying uh, at the moment. I think Midgieland's second in the Danish top division. Yeah. Second. And, um, uh, uh, pushing for the for the for we we won the championship last year, so winning it twice would be you know uh, we won twice in the last uh, four years, so so winning again now and uh, for second year in a row would be pretty pretty amazing for us. So we'll, 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 we're we're giving it a good go, and we think we have a good chance. Love it, awesome, mate. I really appreciate this, and um, yeah, it was a, a big t- pleasure, a ton yep. of value. So uh, thank you for your time, and uh, we'll catch up soon. Thank you, Cody. See you later. The Where Others Won't podcast is recorded at Apollo Studios in downtown Toronto and is produced and edited by Adam Esker. You can book me to speak by the Where Others Won't book or send me an email at codyroyal.com.